Randy come up next and as brothers we come up just it's been a request we make sure that the mic is where it needs to be so that everyone can hear and Randy is going to come up and, and give an exhortation about uh, thanks for God's holiness and then Harrison is going to come and exhort us to be thankful for the fact that we are chosen in him and then I will wrap it up with uh, exhorting us to be thankful for suffering with Christ and for his cause. Randy. Good afternoon, everyone. Why don't we pray before we begin here? Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you, Lord God, for your goodness, your holiness, allowing us to be able to see you as you truly are, giving us um, hearts to believe and mouths to confess and eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, you are worthy of all our worship and praise. And we ask you to be exalted through the service. Bless the three speakers, Lord. Bless all aspects of the service. Use it in a way to draw us onto, our, onto yourself, to strengthen us in you, Lord God. Teach us something new. Excite us about us, about you, Lord. And draw us into your presence, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So my assignment was to speak on holiness, and I got to tell you, I've done quite a few sermons, and this was one of the tougher ones for me, maybe because I'm not so holy. Um, could be a good possibility. But So we're going to go through a few um, different passages today, so buckle up your seatbelt, get ready, we're going for a ride. Um so Psalm 97:12 in the ESV says, "Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name." The holiness of God is in his very nature. It is his character, one of his main attributes or his primary attribute that shows itself in all his other attributes. His only Attribute that is declared again and again and again around the throne of heaven. To raise something to the highest degree is to repeat it three times. His holiness is raised his superlative degree. We don't read about holy angels declaring love, 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 or grace, 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 or mercy, mercy, mercy. No, it's holy, holy holy. His holiness flows into all his other attributes. He has a holy love, a holy grace, a holy mercy. He is a holy sovereign. His word is holy. His son is holy. His Holy Spirit is holy. His angels are holy. He has a holy wrath and a holy judgment and a holy anger for sin because he is so holy. More than any other attribute, God is identified in heaven with his holiness. Everything about our God is holy. God in his holiness is separated above his creation. He is above all, set apart from all of his creation because of his holiness. That's actually part of the definition of holiness. This is the primary explanation of holiness. He is not on our level. 
He is high and lifted up, transcendent, meaning beyond or above the range of normal or merely physical human experience. We hear theologians use the word other in explaining his holiness. He is other than us. He is exalted in his glory, far above us. Exodus 15.11 says, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? There's no one like our God. He is majestic in his holiness. He is a cut above all. We use that as a saying. He's a cut above. God is a cut way above. He is a, there is a great distance between him and us. And I think Josiah was kind of mentioning that, if I understood that, right? A great distance. We like to put people in categories. Tall, short, talkative, quiet, approachable, unapproachable, friendly, not so much. But we don't have a category for God. Why? Because he's in a class all by himself. He is holy, and only he is holy. But he can make the unholy holy. God is distinct in his holiness. The, the classic text for this is Isaiah 6, so we have to go there. So join me with Isaiah 6, please. And I'll set the stage here for you. King Uzziah has died. He was installed as a king as, at age 16, the king boy. He is one of the few good kings. He reigns about 52 years. The nation saw prosperity, advancement under his kingship, but it doesn't end well for King Josiah. His heart becomes prideful. In his arrogance, he storms into the temple where he doesn't belong. The Lord judges him and strikes him with leprosy. He dies and the nation is jolted. The nation is stunned. This is the background when Isaiah has his vision. In Isaiah 6.1, he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty, exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Isaiah is in a bad place. The king is dead. Now what's going to happen to the nation? The Lord shows him the true king. In his vision, he sees the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who put King Uzziah into his office and the one who took King Isaiah out of his office and the one who will replace him with his successor. He is seated and he is reigning above all. He is lofty and exalted in his holiness, raised to the highest degree. And in, the, in, the, in verse 1 it says, the train of his temple filled the temple. When the king of one country conquered the king of another country, the conquering king would have some part of the robe's train sewn onto his own robe. The more enemies he conquered, the longer his train of his robe became and the safer his kingdom was. The temple isn't big enough for the train of our king, our exalted king. It fills it. In verse 2, the seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. What an amazing scene we have here. 
God creates his creature exactly how he, they need to be created to function for the purpose he created them for. They cover their eyes because they're so close to this glory. They cover their feet because they're on holy ground. And they're flying, ready to be dispatched as ministering spirits. Seraphim means burning one, fiery angels. The closer you are to God, the more you will be on fire for him. It's a good example for us. Fiery angels on one side crying out, holy, holy, holy. And angels on the other side saying, the whole earth is filled with his glory. And isn't it? Do you see it? Do you see the glory of God on the earth? I hope so. We read something similar in Revelation 4.8. It says, day in and day night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. The very foundations of the threshold are trembling, and the temple is filling up with smoke. That's verse 4. In verse 5, Isaiah responds to his vision, and he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I have lived among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The people of Isaiah's days would have said, Isaiah, wait a minute. You're a prophet. Your lips are the best part of you. You speak the oracles of God. Isaiah responds, no. I have an unclean lips because I have an unclean heart. Isaiah's response to being in the presence of our holy God is being ruined, completely undone, unraveling, falling apart. We all need a glimpse of our holy God. Maybe we need a fresh glimpse today of our holy God. If you read on in Isaiah 6, you will see that Isaiah's sins are forgiven or atoned for. Whatever God touches, he can consecrate. We have another example of sin in the presence of a holy God, and that's in Mark 4. Please join me in Mark 4. I am reading out of the NASB just so you know, it's a little different. But in Mark 4, verse 35, we read, On that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crown, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, Hush, be still. The wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid. And he said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I like the King James Version. It says, What manner of man, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were afraid. Commercial, professional fishermen on the sea, afraid of drowning. They were really afraid when they saw what a holy God could do. This is what it does 
what sin is to be in the presence of God. One more example. Go to flip up to Luke 5, verse 1. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them, and they were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night, catching nothing. But I will do as you say. And they let down the nets. When they had gone, when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish. Their nets began to break. So signaling to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them, and they came and they filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at his feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. This is what it does to be in the presence of God. I, I, if you read in between the lines here, you can see Peter's attitude. And I love Peter. A lot of uh, preachers and theologians pick on him, but I, I thank God for every apostle just the way they were because I see myself in them. Peter's saying, we're professionals. We know how to fish, Lord. There's no, you're a good teacher. You're a great rabbi, but we know fish. Jesus is cast in that. Um, this is what holiness of God is where it started for all of us, isn't it? When we came to saving faith, didn't we understand how wretched and sinful and how deserving of hell we are and how holy of a God we have that is so patient with us? Isn't this where it started with understanding the holiness of God? R.C. Sproul says, only as we encounter God in his holiness is it possible for us to see ourselves as we really are. You want to see how you really are? Measure yourself up to a holy God. Not to other sinners, but to a holy God. By faith we receive Christ's righteousness to be able to come into the presence of a holy God. Theologians say that the church did its best when they got a handle on the holiness of God. We keep the relationship vertical. When we try to bring him down to our level and have a horizontal level, this is when the church was at its lowest point. The holiness of God is everything. In Ephesians, we read that those of us who have received Christ, that the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Positionally speaking, those in Christ are holy because he is holy. But practically speaking, we're still a work in progress, aren't we? He's working with us because we're still here. Practically, practically speaking, we're still practicing holiness and our sanctification. Why? Because God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. Praise God for his holiness.
brothers and sisters. All right. Set a little timer here. Don't go overboard. Our reading, I think I got the easy one here. Um, Second Thessalonians, second chapter of Second Thessalonians in the 13th verse. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, he says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And that, I was taking some time to think about this message this morning, and actually over the past week, and a lot of verses came to mind about the joy of the Lord, and that everything that Randy just said about the holiness of God, that we cannot approach God in our own merit, in our own strength. He would consume us in a moment. But having been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, I see this not as a subject for controversy and debate. I see it always set within the context of praise and thanksgiving. That's what I see in the scriptures. Many times throughout the epistles of Paul, we see this repeated where he refers to the church as brethren, beloved of the Lord. And he says of himself, he who loved me and gave himself for me. He speaks in the first person. In Revelation 1.5, we read, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Paul was bound, he was even constrained to give thanks for the Thessalonians that they were made partakers of grace with him through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and belief in the truth of the gospel because they had been chosen by God from the beginning unto salvation and it was according to the counsel of God's own will. James at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, he says concerning the Gentiles who would become heirs of salvation, that was the mystery of God from, hidden from before the foundation of the world, that the Gentiles would be included in the family of God. Quoting Psalm 33, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, referring to the Israel of God, the church, and the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. <coughs> it's worth noting that Paul's exhortation early in the chapter, the second chapter of Thessalonians, that against deception by any means concerning the day of Christ, the appearance of Christ, his second coming, that first would come the man of sin or the son of perdition whom the Lord would consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. 
saying that many would be deceived and perish under a strong delusion, believing a lie, that they would be damned, that's the King James, the strong English there, and that they loved not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And note again what the beloved brethren receive. They receive holiness by the spirit of truth, and belief of and love of the truth, that we are set apart unto holiness, and we receive a love of the truth as a gift. And these things were written not only for the Thessalonians, but for all in every age and every place who love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. This is a necessary doctrine. We're talking about election. It's necessary for our spiritual health and our productivity. I don't even like to call it a doctrine. It sounds very sterile. It sounds that some, like something we can take or leave based on our preference, like a, like a Chinese buffet. <laughs> but I like to refer to it as the truth of election, and I like to refer to it as a gift. It is the gift of God. It's not to be despised or discarded, for it is a biblical doctrine, and therefore it is God's doctrine. It was given to the church for our edification, for our building up. <clears throat> so I thought about some of the practical implications of this doctrine of election and, and why we should be giving thanks for that God chose us. Because to read the book of his providence, the circumstances in our lives, <clears throat> through the lens, if, if, we, if we think about God's intentions towards us and we interpret it through the lens of the circumstances in our lives, we are bound to err. We're bound to err. We have to have a solid foundation to stand on when we think about God's love for us. He may have blessed us today with such things as families, spouses, good health, material prosperity, many gifts and, and skills and abilities, but what about tomorrow? What happens when those things disappear, if they're be suddenly withdrawn from us? What would be our ground of confidence that his love towards us has not been withdrawn also or abated. We see in the, in the hymn, the hymn writer says, when peace like a river attendeth our way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, we understand that it is knowing and understanding that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. When we can say that for ourselves, that God loved us individually, that this is our blessed assurance. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What of our conscience? When it reads us an indictment that we cannot refute, thereby condemning us, it's understanding that he is greater than our hearts and knows all things and that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. What about the devil? 
when the devil comes at you with accusations that aren't entirely incorrect, loaded with hatred and venom, desiring to destroy your soul, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Once again, God gave us this doctrine to the church for our consolation, comfort, and encouragement. We see this teaching in the New Testament within the context of thankfulness and never, ever as a pretext for conceit or pride or strife or envy or vainglory with the idea that God must have seen something good in me. Rather, it was according to the good pleasure of his will. Knowing that we are safe in him, chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world, that no power of hell or scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand because salvation is of the Lord. Knowing this, it's like to us, it is like the certificate given to Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress to be presented at the gate of the celestial city. It's our authentication, God having sealed us unto the day of redemption with the promised Holy Spirit. And that, if this does produce spiritual pride, the idea that I can go on sinning because I'm chosen, then there is something wrong. And we need to beware. You are in a slippery place. A Christian may indeed struggle against pride and conceit, as did several of Jesus' disciples, but a prideful Christian is an oxymoron. And as for continuing in willful sin because I'm chosen, it's said of Mr. Spurgeon that he was approached one day by a man who said to him, Spurgeon, if I believed like you do, meaning chosen before the foundation of the world, he says, I would live like the devil. To which Spurgeon replied, indeed you would. That is because you are a devil. (laughs) 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 No, this, there is a longing for holiness in the heart of the Christian, which is fulfilled by the working out of their salvation with fear and trembling, which God works in them by his spirit through grace, not by works of the law, but by humble dependence upon and a continual looking unto Jesus. It could be said that one has no right to the tree of life, lest they be also in the way of holiness. This is a solid platform from which to give thanks and live unto God, and this is This is the ground upon which we must stand when we do anything as we press on in the Christian life, in our loving one another, serving one another, our our prayers, our evangelism, our worship, marriages, parenting, kingdom building. We have to know and understand that God chose us for a purpose. He chose us for himself, and it is a free gift. When you think, how can we give thanks for something if we are unsure that it even applies to us. God wants us to have certainty. The Apostle John said, These things we write unto you that you may know 
that you have eternal life. Paul says, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, knowing that God has not appointed us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. And he goes on to say that whether we wake or sleep, that is, whether we live or die, sorry, still learning my technology here, see, that we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together. Build one another up just as you are doing. Amen. (laughs) So this is our ground of joy and peace, faith and love, knowing that he first loved us. It is hope that does not leave us ashamed because it is founded upon the certitude of God having set his love upon us before ever we had any say in the matter. As some would say, casting our deciding vote for him. Somebody said that the devil was not a registered voter. You were of non-age. That leaves you with one option. It was God who made us to differ. Paul was bound. He was constrained. He could not help but give thanks for these precious souls in Thessalonica, purchased by the Lord, because God had chosen them from the beginning unto salvation. We have a destination. There's a destination in our predestination, and it is to be conformed to the image of God's Son. God's electing purpose, there is an outcome for every child of his, and that is that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Understand that the faith you have is not common. It is a miracle. It's not a common thing like iron or copper ore that you can dig out of the ground or limestone or quartz. It is a rarity like gold or silver or platinum, diamonds and rubies. You carry a treasure more precious than gold, Apostle Peter says. Think back for a moment to that time when you first believed. Do you remember what you thought of Christ before that moment? Perhaps you wrestled for a time. After that, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Ephesians 1.13. What was going on in your heart and mind as this conflict ensued? Think about the resistance that needed to be overcome. In many cases, years of rebellion and hardness of heart against the things of God. In others, simply apathy. To many, Jesus was an object of scorn and ridicule, and to others, a cleverly devised fable. A stumbling block to Jews, to Greeks, foolishness. And understand that if you are saved, he has shined in your heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Give thanks to him for being chosen. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 5 and verse 41, uh, giving thanks for suffering for Christ. I'll actually back up to the 40th verse. And when, when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. At Pepsi, where I work, My position is information technology Jedi. 
That's what I go by. So I'm responsible for all on-premise network devices and components and circuitry, etc. So the other day I was, uh, the sales manager and some others were in a meeting in the conference room and they had to uh, have some people attend virtually as well. The problem is there was an issue with the virtual device. So I was in the process of working on it and as I'm standing up on this cabinet that I probably shouldn't have been standing on to reach this thing that was beyond my reach, somebody called in on the phone that was supposed to be virtual in the meeting, and the sales manager, who was irate about the technology at that moment, said, well, I'm just waiting. Our incompetent information technology guy can't get things going. All right, so I had that same exact response. So you know that initial response that we have to being dishonored. We just don't like it our aversion to being dishonored, particularly in the presence of other people, causes us no small amount of consternation, and we want to reply in kind. And I did somewhat. Not, I've grown. But I just said something to the effect, boy, for somebody that's dependent upon information technology, he picked the wrong time to abuse the wrong guy, didn't he? Because we don't, respond well to suffering dishonor. And we're certainly not accustomed to being thankful for being dishonored publicly. That's just not who we are. And this carries over into our Christian witness if we consistently train our senses and our reactions to be hostile to when we're treated that way in our mind and in our body because you feel it. You, as soon as I said what I was saying, you felt in your body the thing that I felt in my body at that moment. Your body chemistry goes nuts, and you're ready, right? And so when you consistently, over the course of time, acclimate your body and habituate yourself to responding in a particular way, that carries over into Christian witness. What is going to happen when you get publicly slammed and dishonored for your Christian testimony. So how do we cultivate that attitude of gratitude that can suffer for Christ? Look at the change that took place in Peter. How Peter went from a guy that was known from his accent to be one of Christ's followers, as they accused him of. Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away to denying Christ, to being, as the text says here, because Peter was one of these apostles, thrilled at the prospect of being counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. What a change in person. And it is, after all, part of our inheritance, suffering for Christ. It is part of our inheritance. Philippians chapter 1, the 29th verse Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him. Yay, I get to believe in Christ. Right? Thank God for being chosen. Thank God that he's going to bestow upon us his holiness. Oh, also, it has been granted to you to suffer also for his sake. To suffer at times indignity. To suffer public abuse. 
In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you or persecute you or speak all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessed are you. Rejoice and be glad, he said. It's a matter of seeing ourselves as so united with Christ, so united with the Father, so united with the Spirit, that that identification that we have been formed in, in this upside-down kingdom, is such that our response to suffering would be the same as Christ's. It is part of our in-Christness. We have to see ourselves, as Paul often writes, in Christ. In Christ. There used to be a saying of that little acronym around years ago, WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? But I think the more relevant question is what did Jesus do? Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, he says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but consistently committed himself to him who judges justly. By faith, we are those same people. Again, in Philippians, Paul said that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Oh, I want to know that too, don't you? I want to know the power of his resurrection. Man, you get a hold of that. We can give thanks for the resurrection as well, but the power of the resurrection, what a subject that is. But Paul goes in, and that I may share in his sufferings, which he did, becoming like him in his death. I want to be like Jesus in his death, the way he died, his approach to suffering for the cause that was in place before the foundation of the world. But these men, what, what preceded that was they had been brought into the chief priests and they said, we told you not to talk about this man, Jesus. And you keep talking about this man, Jesus. And Peter basically just let him know who Jesus was. And complete contradiction to who the Pharisees and the leadership thought Jesus was. And they were going to stone him to death until Gamaliel stepped in and said, Whoa, dude, slow down, man. He might just be that, and he might not be that. So they decided to let him go, but only after they had stripped them from the waist up and laid upon each one of them 39 lashes, as was the custom of the Jews to not give more than 40. Man, that's, that, that has got to hurt. Forty lashes, 39 lashes on bare skin has got to hurt. I, you ever get a bad sunburn and just step in the shower for a minute and that shower hits the back of your sunburn, you're like, whoa. To have one lash upon the other like that. And then you're walking out of there and you're not... And, 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 you heard each other screaming out in pain. You don't just sit there and grin and bear. That's not possible. I mean, very few would the man or woman be that could just bite their tongue and be silent with that kind of agony happening to them. So that humiliation, and when they're all done, it says they left rejoicing. 
rejoicing. Why? Because they were accounted worthy. God said, that one can suffer for the sake of my name. And as you may know, in the name means everything about Jesus. It means his sovereign rule over death. It means his disarming the principalities and the powers. It means him conquering death. It means everything that God set out to do, to our brother's point, with the nation Israel, Jesus fulfilled and completed. We want to be very careful not to let the Constitution deprive us of our inheritance of suffering for Christ. You know, there are a lot of activists out there doing silly things like gluing their hands to public ways. They believe in letting others suffer for their cause. They had to reroute the Macy's Day Parade because some pro-Palestinian activists glued their hands to the road that the parade was supposed to go on. Now, if I were driving the horse, I'd have trampled them. <laughs> That's why I'm not driving the horse. But, but, but seriously, there are many that are willing to let others suffer for their cause. You know, there's a cake baker who uh, made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And it's great, you know, that he didn't, he didn't want to do this particular thing. He didn't want to bake this cake for uh, gay marriage because he said, that's not what marriage is, and you're forcing me to sort of celebrate that. And he won a partial victory at least. But so that could be the case for anyone that would have made that case. That could have been a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or an atheist even if they wanted to. And it's great that we have God-given rights that are identified and protected by the Constitution. Don't misunderstand me. Paul was grateful for his right. At one point, Paul was getting stretched out to be whipped, and he said, whoa, 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 you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna do this to a Roman citizen that hasn't been given a trial? And the, the guy with the whip was like, whoa, this guy's a citizen? So those are things we, we thank God for them. And it may be that the cake baker rejoiced over being counted worthy to suffer for the name, but that doesn't appear in any story about the cake baker and his cause of making or not making a cake. And so <clears throat> we, we're not as concerned about asserting our rights as being grateful to, to be so easily identified with the one who has the right to rule over the universe and who asserts his sovereign plan and control upon it. It is our collective conscience, right, when, when a baker like that wins a victory, we all get the sense, yeah, you know, we can... I don't see any of that going on, you know? Not that there's anything wrong with, again, asserting our rights, but let's be careful to not... We can do an awful lot that we don't perhaps at times do in our nation that protects individual liberties to a certain extent. But if we aren't careful, we will let the Constitution deprive us of our true inheritance of suffering for the name of Christ and running for protection rather than suffering justly as Christ's people for him. So be encouraged then to cultivate this sense of gratitude. I don't know to the extent that any of us have suffered for the cause of Christ, some public ridicule at times. But again, don't we assert ourselves with sort of a, we get our fur up when that happens? 
I mean, collectively, we see that in the media. We see the Christians that are celebrated in the media. And they're not rejoicing over the fact that they're accounted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. So how do you nurture thankfulness for that? How do you cultivate thankfulness for that in such a culture? What we have to continue to do is things like meditate upon the holiness of God and the fact that we're chosen and the fact that we're so united. If we, if we live in that place where we're focused upon, we're meditating upon the reality of what God has done, then our response is very naturally going to be like the response of those apostles and others. It will become a cause of rejoicing for us, even if we win a legal battle. <clears throat> the fact that we can get out there and say, you know what, I'm glad that the court identifies this, but I'm happier still that God has counted me worthy, who was a slanderer and an abuser and a reviler and a sinner in every imaginable way, that God has counted me worthy to stand here and to speak that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the universe. And as you all secular world are trying to compel us to accept the definition of humanity on your terms, we acknowledge the one true God who has created us in his image, and we are here to represent him, and we give thanks for that despite the consequences. Amen? So, Father, we thank you for your holiness. We thank you that you have chosen us, and we thank you that in the course of time, as well as the wonderful protection you give us from godless men and women, that we are allowed in uh, various and sundry ways to suffer for the cause of the name and help us to continue to nurture and cultivate in ourselves and one another, because none of us does it alone, to our brother's point earlier. None of us does it alone, but together, we can be that body that is able together to suffer and rejoice in suffering for the name through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's give thanks, and God, and God should re receive all the glory for what we've experienced here today. Please join me. <clears throat> To God be the glory, great things he hath done, so loved he the world.